Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at the Skizar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this is a special episode also in our ongoing series about the Great Shanghai Escape. But this episode is in conjunction with my dear friend and colleague, Davi Safir, who I write a regular weekly column with in Mishpacha magazine. And of course, we do many, many other projects together as well. And he is has graciously um, answered my invitation to come along. And the question is, why would I have Davi on with me today? Um and because I'd never have anyone on this podcast, but Davi, he's an expert in many things, but one of the many topics that he's an expert in is on the mirror in general and specifically in the escape to Shanghai. Um, and I felt like from day one, when we're doing this, uh, this series, it's appropriate. I should definitely have one with Davi because he's kind of like known as the expert. He's carved out a niche for himself in this topic and not only that, unlike me, who has just read books on the topic, Davi has done some original research and has uncovered um, some archival stuff that no one has ever even seen before. So thank you, Davi, for joining with me on Jewish History Soundbites in this Great Shanghai Escape episode. Thanks for having me. I think this is the first I'm hearing about me being an expert on this, so... But I think when people uh, think about us, they definitely associate us with the Mir Yeshiva. Uh, probably could bring us to our, our first topic, which really was last week, where uh, we uh, reunited once again at the annual Mir Yachikala. Yeah, it was great was, seeing uh, you. Which was, I think, uh, was it five years straight or four years straight? Um, and it's a, uh, it's a really special event. It usually has... 350, 400 people come. This year was closer to 250, um, but uh, it had a bit of a different flavor, obviously, with everything going on in Israel. Um, this is the first time in a very long time that I saw everyone picking up cigarettes at duty free. Um, but this time it wasn't, you know, to smoke, but it was to give out to Chayalim. Uh, so uh, it really was a, it had a different flavor, it had a different tone, but uh, once again, you know, Mary Shiva is a special place and it's always great to uh, be there, especially with you, together and learn a little bit. And, and Yeah, we did uh, even yeah, learn a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> even though we, we get distracted by uh, everyone walking over to us, that, you know, people may, my, people who don't know us might think that we're experts on you know, Baba Kama and, and everything else that we were learning, but uh, they actually were just coming over to ask us history questions, but uh, that's what happens. I think they probably should just place us in a different room next time. I think it's <laughs> not even fair. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, it's a, uh, 
to anyone who's attended any Yerichei Kala at their former yeshiva, it's a, it's a special thing. It's something that's hard to, uh, to quantify unless you've done it. You know, this is the, the, the Ponovich uh, creation, I believe, although the Mir Yeshiva yeah. did do it, did do something similar where the alumni would come back for El. They would come back, back for El. Back in time, yeah, in Poland. All right, we're still trying to figure out how they fit more people into that base marriage. If anyone's been there in Poland and seen how, whatever it was, 300 people or maybe closer to 400 at its peak fit into a base marriage that was tiny, right? And how they squeeze people in. And I think we once heard a description by Shabshan uh, Fall Weiss, uh, who basically said that like, you couldn't even get, like, if you need, you basically you sat down and there was no getting out until everyone else got out. You, you were squished in over there, but you enjoyed every moment of it. And I think the Achikala is usually there's a little more spaces here, but, uh, yeah, but it's, but usually a, it's uh, that feeling. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a special event. And, um, I had the opportunity as well, besides for attending the Archekala, to um after the Archekala was over, um, to, to do some visits. I, I went to Bene Brak and I did something that uh I wanted to do for a long time, which was to go visit uh Dov Landau and more specifically to visit his wife, Adina. Adina formerly Cher Landau, who was about uh it was in her late eighties, um, close to ninety whose story during the Holocaust is absolutely incredible, how she was saved together with her, her cousins. Uh, they were placed by their aunt, um, Chaim Miriam Shulman, in a monastery. Um, they, they were in the Kovna ghetto, and she, she, they were hidden there, and her both of her parents, Yosef Sharon and her mother, not remembering her first name, were killed. Um, and, and not so long ago, um, a genealogist um, who I work with, I, who I believe is the best genealogist out there, Chayasara Herman, um, directed me to an archive where we found a picture of Rebetzin, uh, of Yosef Sher and his his Rebetzin. Now, Sarah, I think her, her name was right. You're probably right, but I don't have it in front of me right now. But um, when Rav Landau was in America last time, I brought him the picture of his father-in-law, and I believe there is a picture of him from the time he was in Chavran, Yeshiva. He was sent initially, and then he went back to Europe. So there is a picture of him that they had, but this was this is a majestic, regal-looking, high-resolution photo that was taken for his passport, and he gasped and asked me where I got it, and I explained it to him. And uh, the following day, um, there were pictures, I don't know, people saw that uh, Landa went to visit Shmuel Kamenetsky, who was uh, in the rehab after he had his uh, small stroke. And if you look closely in that picture, you see that Rav brought the picture I gave him of his father-in-law to show Shmuel Kamenetsky. And why was that? Wow. It was because he thought, and he might be right, um, that Shmuel is probably the last person who, to remember his father-in-law. Um, Shmuel, as a as a young boy, spent some time in the Slabatka Yeshiva Katana. We could talk about that at a different time among the few yeshivas that he attended right. when he was young. Um, and Shmuel correctly identified, you know, Rabbi share for him. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a great moment uh, for me. I felt vindicated and I felt very good about myself. Maybe, maybe the most productive research I'd ever done because to make the you know, one of the Gedele had dark smile like that. But uh, I wasn't giving him the picture of his of his mother-in-law because I wanted to be there and see the reaction of his wife when she showed, when she saw a picture of her mother for the first time in 80 years. And, right. I mean, uh, just to give went. just to give background, just in case not everyone is familiar, just why it was 80 years and, and what does it mean? She she um she's a share right she her mother was uh, Rebetzin Sarah share and her father was Rabbi Yosef share her grandfather was Rabbi Isaac share the Rashiva Slobodka, the son-in-law of the altar Rabbi Nassim Finkel and and Rabbi Isaac um I think it was in Switzerland when the war broke out so he made it to Palestine Eretz Yisrael and um and his son and daughter-in-law were stuck in the Kavna ghetto they were both killed in the ninth fort where most of the Jews of Kavna were shot. Um, in the meantime, Rebetzin Sarah Sher smuggled her or her sister. You mentioned right; it was, it was her aunt, right? It was uh, smuggled this young girl out out of the ghetto to a monastery where she survived the war, and she never saw her mother again. So, 
like you said, go, you go back to saying it's 80 years since she's seen her mother. Yeah, and and uh, I made sure that somebody else was there. Her her daughter, um, Robertson Schwartzman, was, was there together because I you never want to surprise someone of that age with something like that. And to hear uh, hear her her shout from the picture, "Mama!" Like she hadn't seen a picture of her mother in all those years. You know, I thought the moment of Dove was special to me. This was like this really was one of the most special things I've ever been involved in. And, and more, one of the most gratifying parts of this uh, industry, uh, I guess, if you can call that. Uh, but I uh, really was. And, and I've had this before where I found pictures of people that they've never seen of family members. But this really was, was next level. You know, to give somebody a picture of their mother who was killed in the Holocaust. Um, and, and, and she did remember her mother, she told me. She, she, knew, she knew exactly. Right away, she saw it and she recognized her. And she, she was eight years old, seven years old. Um, when 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 she was uh, taken, um, but uh, but it was an, an incredible moment. I also had a chance for the first time to visit the Panovitcher, uh I believe the the Panovitcher Rosh Hashiva, or I don't know the title is president and and Rosh Hashiva of uh, Eliezer Kahneman, um, who was helpful in the uh, Jenny Miller story. Um, and uh, catch up with him. And he is a wealth of, of knowledge and information, obviously Tyra as well. And uh, he's very interested in, in, in these kind of uh, subjects. He, he's uh, in, in gene- genealogy and trying to track down anything and everything about his grandfather, the Panovich Um and, and it seems that he and I have been down the same path, trying to chase down information and material in the past. So we had what uh, to schmooze about, and he's got an incredible library of Sfarim and, and manuscripts and all kinds of things to see. So, you know, th- th- those were um, really some of the more positive, uh, really positive parts of the trip. And then I had the really the difficult part of the trip, which was going down with a with a friend of mine to the south and, and seeing some of what had happened um, on, on some Kostara and the massacre. And, and, you know, at the same, to see the atrocities and, and visit Kibbutzim, and also at the same time to see the incredible work being done, whether it's by you know soldiers and, and the people that are doing the cleanup. Uh, the spend some time with uh, a unit in the army that is Chaver uh, Kadisha that joins that, that works alongside comrades. And these are elite soldiers that work together with their comrades. Chas something happens. They're the ones that have to bring the mason back and for Kura um, and, and it was uh, I'll tell you I was with a friend of mine who was a Kohen and we davened with them Shachas and this is the first time they had been able to do Brechas Kohanim in almost two months because there can't be any Kohanim in this unit um, and uh, I, I, I walked the field where the Nova Festival was um, and it's been basically cleaned up but there's you know debris here and there and, and but you still see like remnants of cars that were blown up on the side of the road. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it kind of reminded me, you know, that, uh, you know, when we grow up and we realize, you know, I, I grew up, I lived in Israel for a few years, but uh, I was born and raised in America. And, and we never think, we never thought to think that things like this would happen in our lifetime. You know, we, we look at uh, the students of history, you know, you look at the Holocaust, you look at even like Kishinev and, and things like that. And you say, okay, these are, things that happen in history, but in today's day and age, these things can't happen and they won't happen. And sure, they're isolated incidents, you know, of horror. And even when we saw things like ISIS, you know, we said, okay, that's that's in Syria and that's in Iraq and that's not coming to Israel or America, right? It's that kind of barbarism. But but to see it up close, um, you know, it's, it's a nightmare come true and uh, something that I'll never forget. And, uh, you know, I feel like I was lucky to be able to bear witness but at the same time the sights the smells are things that I'll probably never get out of my my head and uh, really you know we all have to have tremendous hakaras to tell to all of those who are out there on the front lines um, doing this work um, and uh, you know, there's really nothing more I can say that hasn't been, been said already um, but it was a it was a difficult day but at the same time you know you see the incredible work being done by so many, right? You know, uh, going to uh, Tel Shomer and seeing that there are more volunteers there than injured soldiers. 
um, you know, seeing how many people were there just wanting to, to be mechazek, the, uh, the wounded soldiers. And, uh, you know, uh, at some point, I'm going to try and write down everything that happened during those days and everything that I saw. But uh, it's, it's too much to share and maybe too difficult. But it, it was, it was a lot. You're bearing witness to history. You know, the night before, you were you were making history by uncovering a picture that had been lost and showing it to Robertson Landau. And the next day, you're bearing witness to history by being a part of history. And that's, you know, historians of, of, of Eastern Europe, people like Shimon Dubnov, and later even more famously Ringelblum in the Warsaw Ghetto, they said, be actively part of history, you know, collect what's what's happening around you, uh, t- testify, write down, um, you know, collect artifacts, be, be a part of it. So that's exactly what you did. It's, that's not just, you know, being a historian of the past, that's creating the documentary record for the future. And that's the, probably the best type of historian that you can possibly be is by bearing witness like that. I wish I could go down there one of these days. Maybe I will. And you're lucky that you were able to participate in that. I, I can use uh, the words of Rachel Parashlita, somebody who I'm, I'm privileged to have a close relationship with. One of the first times I met him, he told me, Davi, it's great to study history and to know history, but it's more important to make history. Exactly. So I think that's, that's <laughs> something that I that I try and, and live by, and I think that's it's, it's really, uh, really important. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, Anyone who's listening that's out there on the front lines, anyone who's anyone who's in Israel, anyone and Jews all around the world is that's you know, the, the achdos that we're seeing, you know, we're all together in this Nima and Achizatzara, and we'll get through this together and uh we'll come out of this stronger than ever. Yes, we will. And very good points. And you had that piece of history that you were in before the Archicala in that uh, rally in Washington too. And that was also, I mean, just to be together with 300,000 Jews of all stripes, you know, at the same time, you know, was something that uh, it gave me goosebumps. And to see, you know, so many congressmen and senators and you know, the most important ones in the country all there and inspired by what they saw and and, and the words that, that came out of their mouths, which were, you know, that we're, we're, we stand with the Jewish people against anti-Semitism and together with Israel. And that was, you know, you know, to me, it was uh, hearing, uh, hearing Nathan Sharansky speak was maybe the highlight. Uh, I was standing next to some younger people and they didn't know who he was. And I told them he's a Russian refusenik. And kind of sad to me, they weren't sure if they meant he was a hockey player or what. <laughs> I said, you know, that... Uh, I belong to a different generation, literally, figuratively. Yeah. Um, but uh, to me, uh, his speech uh, reminded me a bit, uh, you know, if you look in the 2002 rally, you can find on C-SPAN uh, when Ellie Wiesel spoke. Um, I feel like, you know, Nathan Sharansky is kind of that, you know, in a different way, you know, right. one of those figures for, for our generation. And, and what's beautiful about him, Sharansky, is I've read his books, and you hear him speak, and this is a you know Shomer Shabbos Jew, um, and he he speaks in eloquent English, but he hasn't lost any of his Russian accent. So so it doesn't lose any of that tam that flavor. Um, so you you remember what this man did and the sacrifices he made. Many of your grandfathers fought for our freedom. Many of your parents fought for our freedom. Many of you fought for our freedom, and that what made all the change. So, when in the long years in prison, I was told again and again that I am alone, that I am abandoned, that we failed. It was enough for me simply to remember all those faces of Jews from America, from Britain, from Canada, who were coming to us, to Moscow, to support us, to understand that KGB is lying. Because they, you, were bringing so much love and so much strength to us. This picture of one Jewish fighting family 
was always in my head. And that is why it was so clear that whatever will be my personal fate, the outcome of our struggle can be only our victory. I've heard from Malcolm Holmline, who, who I've gotten to know because uh, in his words, I think he told me that he was, you know, one of the most famous Jews that came from Philadelphia and then he was replaced by Jenny Miller. Um, <laughs> and, um, and he was one of the organ- organizers of those Russian, the rallies for Russian Jewry, that rally in 2002 during the Antifada. Um, but uh, it, it was really uh, special, really, really special uh, sitting in the car on the way back and, and thinking about it and, and seeing, uh, seeing uh, and I want to talk for a second, a senator like John Fetterman, who came into office and people thought that he'd be part of a progressive caucus, which is anti-Israel, and seeing him draped in an Israeli flag. Um, and I think my now famous tweet, which was seen by a million and a half people, of that picture of him talking to an older man, who I think was a Holocaust survivor, but I'm actually not sure who he was, if anyone can identify him, I'd love to know. Um, and him just saying how I just don't understand how there are two sides to this uh, conflict in terms of who's right and who's wrong. He says, there's only one side here, he says, and, and, and I stand with Israel no matter what. And that was a, that was a beautiful thing for, for, for me to see in person and to get to talk to him and be able to say thank you to a man like that for standing up to Israel, even as he gets, you know, kind of uh, pushback from those, uh, you know, on his side. You know, not necessarily in the Democratic Party, but those in, in the far left of the Democratic Party thought he would stand with them. Right. I, I watched it live. Uh, my kids wanted to see Omer Adam, um, and that was their highlight, not Nathan Sharansky. Um, By the way, uh, a little did you know, Omer Adam, I did not know this, was, is American, born in America in, in North Carolina. He's uh, 30 years old, and uh, I, I guess his, his father was working in America at the time, and he is the he's the son of a mountain Jew, a family uh, um, and an Ashkenazi mother. But uh, I, wow. I thought that, you know, I wasn't sure what his background was before, but I never had imagined that. But uh, <laughs> a mountain Jew born in America. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. How either. many people, uh, how many people came to say, you should rebo and Omar Adam? Let's be, let's be honest. Exactly. That, yeah. uh, that being leaked before, I think definitely helped the, the crowd. Helped the crowd. But, so, uh, right. I, so that was my kid's highlight. But like you, I saw the Nathan Sharansky thing is very poignant because the, the, um, the rallies for Soviet Jewry definitely played a role in the rescue of Soviet Jewry. So if anyone doubts the, you know, the uh, do rallies help, are they successful? Nathan Sharansky standing there is, you know, pretty much the biggest testimony to that, that the success story of American Jewry standing up for Soviet Jewry were those rallies. And therefore, you know, there's no doubt that 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 uh, the about the importance of this rally as well, and it was a you know nice bookend his, his, historical effect there that he spoke um, at this one too. Yeah, yeah, and even to have President Herzog, who comes from the Herzog family, and and everything that the Herzog family stands for, or Herzog was really you know it doesn't doesn't get nearly enough credit for being at the center of of uh, Hatzalah work during the war and him really I'd say among the, the, the someone we're about to talk about soon together with Avram Kamenovich and one of those who was at, at, at the center of saving what was saved of the Torah world um, and he doesn't get nearly enough credit for that because you know later on in his life you know he was associated you know with more of the political side of Israel and people look, look at him as the you know the, the chief rabbi but uh, you know he was also the you know the chief. Uh, first of all, he was the head. Of, he was the head of the Vada Yeshivas in Israel, and right. uh, the rest you did the Talmud Chacham that he was. Um, I don't right. know if you've ever seen described the, the smicha that he had from the Ridbaz. Um, he met up with him when the Ridbaz was in London, nineteen ten, um, and and he tested him for three days, and the Ridbaz was not. It was not someone I was just going to give smicha, and he got smicha from him. Um, and his son Yaakov Herzog, who was involved in rescue work as well, right? We wrote about it in the article with Belzer yeah. Eva. He had, he had Smicha, he had Smicha from Professor Zalman, who wrote a glowing, glowing recommendation for him. Um, 
someone mentioned that this was Alman quotes Chidushim we heard from him. I, I've never seen that. I'm curious, maybe a listener can can show show us that. But um, but uh, Yaakov Herzog also was kind of one of those forgotten heroes. He died young, but uh, he was a Talmud Chacham. He was he was something else people don't know. One of the architects of Chidachat's Mai helped Ivan Cutler. Um, in the early years, yeah. In the early years uh, of the state, um, with Chidachat's Mai, um, brilliant diplomat, um, but uh, we lost him at a young age. And, and, and you know, it's not it's not for that, you know, Yaakov Herzog would be one of those, uh, you know, Israel doesn't have a Mount Rushmore. Maybe one day they'll build some kind of you know, cheap version <laughs> of, of Mount Rushmore. But uh, he's certainly one of the important figures in Israeli history, and and somewhat forgotten, you know. But uh, the Herzog family continues its its legacy, right? A dynasty now with the president, um, and it's a good it's a good connection to our series because we have been talking about in the series of Rev Herzog's role, and the Rebbeisiadol Finkel of the Mir was in several letters, uh, and of course Zarah Varovtig was in correspondence with him. And Rav Herzog, in the initial stages of the war, actually travels to England to get above quota visas for Rabbanim. And some of the greatest rabbis who rebuilt the Israeli Torah world after the war got on visas of Rav Herzog that he got for them. The Riskarov and Rav Zalman Saruskin and Rav Shach and, and um, Rav Chesk Mishkovsky and um, several others. So he definitely, Rav Leziotl himself and several others. Um, so, you know, definitely... Just for that, if not for anything else, uh, he he needs to be remembered, and and maybe that can bring us to um, to talk a little bit about um, in in where we're holding in the series. Um, so we did mention the last episode um, how we are, um, you know, how they funded their way out of of the Soviet Union once they got all the visas. And they get to Japan across the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and now they're trying to settle in Japan. And try to the refugees are trying to settle there, specifically the Mir Yeshiva and other Yeshiva students, are trying to pull themselves together there. The question of funding was always an issue. The joint is funding a lot of the refugees' activities. And of course, the Varatsala, um, the which is a newer organization specifically focused on Yeshiva, yeshiva students, yeshivas, rabbis, and Ravram Kalmanovich is rising as the savior, so to speak, of the yeshiva world stuck in Japan at this point, raising funds for them, um, ostensibly for the Mir Yeshiva, but really for way beyond that as well. Now, you've done some some pretty impressive research on the funding in general, the joint, the Varatsala, Ravram Kalmanovich, Ravram Kalmanovich specifically, anything that you can that you can add to to that picture, broaden our picture about. Rabbi Ram Kalinovich's role at this point in Japan, Shanghai, how he's funding the yeshiva. Before I do that, however, I just want to play an audio that I found of Rav David Kviat, where he talks about the, the great author of the Sukkot David, um, where he talks about the journey from Vladivostok, and he talked about it last episode, but the journey from Vladivostok to Japan and the joy they felt when they knew they'd been uh, saved. It's, it's absolutely incredible. When I looked at the, at, the, at the ship, I never saw my ship in my life. But I said, this is a ship. This is our best stop. A, a little freight ship, two and a half thousand ton. A ship is 20,000 ton, 25,000, 30. This is a ship. But it... This is the ship what we went. It wasn't for human. It was no beds. No afraid. For behemoths afraid. We lay on the floor. But we happy, we were very happy. We're going out for fresh. The, 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 the rules were as the ship would went out from Russia to another. The Russian officer went on on the ship. Then, when it came a few hours in the end of the sea, extraterritorial extra t- 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 waters, it came a Russian ship 
and they jumped up from the ship, they were up and down and went back. Then we knew we are free. Then we started to sing and dance. Shmuel Harker, Shmuel Harker, he was leading. Omer, 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 Hidelach. Omer, 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 Yisraeliklach. Omer, 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 Yaakovach. Aumeleakleine, Nishtonachazavoltazoine. Mit Sitten sehr schöne, nicht danach hat er Polk auf der Welt. Und mehr und mehr und mehr, Idelach, und mehr und mehr und mehr, Israeliklach, und mehr und mehr und mehr, Jankeflach, ei, 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 ei. Amazing, absolutely amazing. But uh, let's get back to discussing uh, the story at hand and Ram Kamenovich. Well, there are all kinds of, of miracles that play out in the story. Um, just how does the Ravon Kamenovich get to America, right, using the, the Atlantic route? Well, well, you know, in the early years of the war, like, and no one's getting these visas, and, and Ravon Kamenovich just appears in America. How does that happen? Is that years earlier, Ravon Kamenovich, right, was appointed president of the Mir Yeshiva, right? And he was given a kolel in, in, in Rakov, right? Which was a, a Mir kolel, actually the Jenny Miller kolel of the Mir Yeshiva. Um, and that, that's the name on stationary at least. Um, and somehow during his time in America, Rome Kamenovich acquires an American passport. I have no idea. I've gone through, I mean, pages and pages in different archives, um, State Department and, and, and reviewed applica- applications. I, I can't seem to find his passport application and how on earth are Rome Kamenovich acquired an American passport, but leave it to Rome Kamenovich because he figured <laughs> out everything. Um, but um, somehow he had an American passport and he was able to go with his family um, to America for the sole purpose of trying to save uh, to save the yeshiva. Um, and keep in mind, he was not a he was not a Rosh Yeshiva, the Mir Yeshiva. And I, I, I just for the purpose of trying to make distinctions here, I like to refer to Mir Yerusha, Mir Poland, Mir Yerushalayim as the Mir Yeshiva, and the institute that uh, Yeshiva that Ravon Kamenovich later built um, on Ocean Parkway as the Mirror Yeshiva. Um, I, I once did a bit at a Shabbat uh, Brachas of my dear friend uh, Yossi Hecht. Everyone knows Yossi Hecht, the great Yossi Hecht. If you don't know him, you could listen to uh, Surly Besser's podcast to give Yossi Hecht, who is a, an incredibly inspirational person and a, a close friend of mine. And in that uh, on that episode, I discussed the differences between the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim and the Mir Yeshiva in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, it's not really a time for comedy, but it, it's always a time for comedy. <laughs> Yeah. I can go through a couple of them, but uh, I say both of them have just about the same amount of secular studies. <laughs> and Mir Yerushalayim is located next to Brooklyn Bakery, while Mir Brooklyn is next to Jerusalem Pizza. <laughs> both of them are near the Syrian border. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them, you look out the window and you can see the Chorban of Yerushalayim. The other one, you look out and see the Chorban of New York. Oh, uh, one of them is near Shar Shem, and the other one is next to Share Zion. But uh, mm-hmm. I think the uh, the best one was some guy living in a basement in Bensonhurst told me that neither of them are the real near Yeshiva. Right, of but course. Maybe Yavin, right? Of course. If you know, you know. But they're obviously referring to a base Talmud. Right. But uh, let's get back to to uh, Ram Kamenovich. Um and I would say that uh, there's another quote that I heard once from the great uh, Rabbi Emanuel Gettinger, who defined an effective shtadlin as someone who lives by the mantra of less publicity and more productivity. And Ram Kamenovich was all about productivity. Um, he was nonstop. He worked eighteen twenty. He worked daily. To the point of exhaustion, and we have we have multiple testimonies of that. Uh, um, we'll play this. We'll play an audio um, 
of Rabbi Handelsman, who was his longtime, uh, longtime, uh, I would say, assistant, uh, in, in, in later was, I think, the executive director in the Yeshiva, which my good friend, uh, Ruven Borchat, those of you know from uh, Hamadiyah fame, shared with me. And let me tell you what I mean. I want to tell you just a little story that we did have of them. When Rabbi Abraham Kalmanowicz was alive, it was during the Hungarian uprising. And we were sitting in the office. One day comes in a very fine elderly gentleman, long white beard, and he says that they just came from Hungary and there was some discrepancies in the papers and they are 17 souls and the immigration wants to send them back. We all know what it means going back to the communist regime at that time. And he asks the Rosh Hashive, he says he had spoken to lawyers and they cannot help. And he asked the Rosh Hashive, he heard that Rosh Hashive has a Yiddish heart, I remember he said, and he asked him to extend them a help, that they should be able to stay in the United States. The Rosh Hashive told him, let me think about it. Call me tomorrow. Person walked out. Half hour has done gone by, and Roshivi tells me, I quote, I think I have an idea what I can do. And he tells me I should find out the number of the cardinal in Boston. And I called up. And he wants an appointment for the next day. And he comes into Boston. I was in the yeshiva, I was left in the office, and we had there in Brookline, Massachusetts, a Rabbi Koenigsberg, where the yeshiva would always stay by that Rabbi Koenigsberg, Zechrein and Tzadik, Agun and Tzadik, Amalach. And he took him and they went to the cardinal and he was pleading Rabbi Koenigsberg told me what took place there. He was crying to help that the 17 people should stay in the country. So the cardinal asked the Rosh Hashiva, what do you want of me? And he said, make me an appointment in Washington with the commissioner of immigration. The cardinal picked up the telephone and made an appointment for the following day. And they walked home to Rabbi Koenigsberg. The Rosh will sleep over there. And the next morning... He had an appointment for 12 o'clock, and he was supposed to take a 10 o'clock flight. Rabbi Koenigsberg told me, 3 o'clock, I, I was a few times in that home in Brookline. The bedrooms were upstairs, and downstairs was the kitchen and the dining room. 3 o'clock in the morning, Rabbi Koenigsberg hears noise. He goes down in the kitchen and he sees the Rosh Hashiva Ayit, close to 70 years old, is getting dressed. So he says, Rosh Hashiva, where are you going? It's 3 o'clock, 3 a.m. So Rosh Hashiva says, You don't see the storm, it was in December. You don't see the snow. How will I get a taxi tomorrow? And I have an appointment in Washington with the Commissioner of Immigration. I'll get dressed, it's six miles to the airport, I'll start walking, by eight, nine o'clock I'll make it. Rabbi Koenigsberg told him, Rosh Hashive, I want you to go back to sleep, and if this, you will not get a taxi, that's how he showed me, I'll carry you on my shoulders, I promise you, I'll carry you on my shoulders to the airport, but I want you to go to sleep. Rabbi Isai, a Rosh Hashive, almost 70 years old, was ready to sacrifice himself to go. Finally, in the morning, the snow subsided. Rosh Hashive took the plane and went to Washington, and he came into the commissioner, and he started to plead and to cry without knowing any English. And the commissioner asked him, Rabbi, you are vouching for those people? He said, yes, they are very honest people. They didn't do any crime. They didn't know how to bring their papers. It should be completely correct. And Roshiva, when he came back, told me that the commissioner was so impressed, he took out the seal, the stamp, and stamped the paper. 
and Roshivi came back and the gentleman, the grandfather came in and he gave it to him. And he asked Roshiva, how much do I owe you? The Roshiva said, I don't take compensation, I don't take pay for saving Jewish souls. Later on, the Mira Yeshiva built a high school. The tile was laid by those people that went into tile business, and they gave it as a donation without being asked for the entire high school. So it's really incredible. Just to hear these stories about his mysterious nefesh and, and, and everything that that he did really for the for the yeshiva. It's just one of the one of the stories. Amazing. Uh, um, 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 among the, the many. But uh Yudel Finkel while he was he was going you have to realize Ron Kamanovich went to America, right? And Revlaza Yudel is travelling together with the Briskarov, right? To Odessa to Eretz Right, thanks to and and from Odessa he writes to him that you know in 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 my opinion you have been our I think he used the words Malach Hamoshia right our, our saving angel um, you know and and, uh, and and that's that's the truth but, he was uh, uh, I, I think that the the the, the stories of Ram Kamenovich um, another one I heard or my parents told me. Um, about him, everyone knows the story about how he fainted in front of the Secretary of Treasury, Morgan Morgenthau. Right, and when he, when he was describing the condition, you know what was going on and how badly he needed his help. Um, and uh, un, unbeknownst to him, Henry Morgenthau had a Jewish girl who understood Yiddish uh, as a secretary, and uh, you know, kind of whispered under his breath, uh, under his breath to. Person who was with them, I believe, it was Rabbi Cork from Boston. Um, did I do a good job or something <laughs> to that tune? And and uh, years later, Rabbi Per Rabbi Per heard from Henry Morgenthau Jr., the uh, Attorney General. I think he's Attorney General of New York. He was in his nineties. Rabbi Per told me that uh, the secretary had told him that story, um, you know, <laughs> and she never obviously outed him. You know that the, the fainting to the was, was an act. Yeah. Was an act. You know, he could have fainted out of exhaustion, by the way. Right. But uh, you know him him traveling on on Shabbos to Washington at one point um, to get to get papers um, and and the it's really indescribable. I think that there there are a few books that everybody has to read. Um, lately, uh, lately another book, uh, one book that I've quoted from because a lot of people have asked me. For a source, we wrote an article in on an article in Iron Cutler, where Iron Cutler writes exactly a year ago, right? Exactly a year ago, um, that he would work with the Pope even to save fingernail, the fingernail of a of a Jew. Um, and, and by the way, Rav Kamenovich did work with the Vatican, and 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 says that they were somewhat helpful to him. Um, right. But uh, a fire in his soul, uh, the book by Amos Bunim about his father, Irving Bunim, yes. which has really. Which really is the source has a lot of this about Rav Kamenovich and Rav Aaron Cutler and and, and Irving, Irving Bunim was one of the great, you know, that's all activists. activists. Sure, right. It's funny. He, my my, my well, sister in law is a Kamenovich, and I once asked her about the fainting, so she told me exactly like you said. She said that they have a family tradition that um, Rav Kamenovich was asked by one of his kids, I guess her grandfather, Shragamaisha, um, how do you how like how do you faint at the perfect time? Like, how did that happen? It's so miraculous. He said, well, if you need a faint, you faint. You do whatever you need to do in order to get the job done. So fainting is needed, then that's what's done. So he was able to uh, to utilize every, <laughs> every, every, even theatrics to a certain extent, but it was also authentic to a certain extent in order to get the job done. Yeah, and, and you know... Uh... At this point, right in the story, right, we're going back. The um, the I believe the Vada Tzolo sends a young um, activist, a young Syria uh, good uh, activist named uh, Frank Newman. Frank Newman, right? right? We didn't get to speak to him about him yet. Right He's in to Japan. Japan, yeah, right. And, and, and just to kind of assess the situation as an American citizen to see. Now, I don't know much about him, and, and I actually 
in in uh, a couple of books that their the footnotes refer to his archive, and I've never been able to find where his archive is held, or if it's an official archive, or it belongs to the family. I don't know if he has Anikloch uh, out there, um, family, but I'd love to know because because I'd love to see some of uh, you know what he's uh, what, what some of the letters that he wrote. I mean, we've seen there are a few of them in uh, in the Varatzella archive. But uh, I never saw it, which is located at YU. And we always have to thank Shalamis Berger, the incredible archivist at YU, um, who has always been helpful. And, and they have the Vatatzel archives and Irving Bunim's small personal archives. And, in, you know, if you ever visit, anyone who visits there, you know, you can make an appointment and go see, you know, some of these desperate telegrams and these lists. And, and really, you get a very good glimpse into into what was happening um really starting in japan and the other one is the jdc archive which is online you can go in, on, in the joint distribution committee archive and see your entire folders there full of correspondence with japan um and the small committee of jews in japan i believe it was called uh, kobe jucom just a small organization and this is fellow leo hannon who shared his memories and he shares a very cute story about uh, the Amshinov Rebbe, who was there at the time, who he grew very fond of, uh, and an interesting request he made. I have to tell you a point today, very interesting. Uh, so when we were talking to the Rebbe the night before, I said, Rebbe, if, supposing it's all right, supposing it works, who knows? Where would you want to go? There's so many British colonies. He says to me, Jamaica. I said, Rebbe, I, frankly, I didn't even know where Jamaica was at that time. I, I heard the name Jamaica, but I couldn't imagine in my mind on the map where it was. He says, well, who's Jamaica? Why not uh, Australia? Why not Canada? He says, the climate got me is a good, it's a very good climate. <laughs> I went home, I took, I had an atlas. I said, Jamaica is very close to New York. And he thought, if they'll get to Jamaica, <laughs> maybe it will be easier for them to get to New York. He didn't want to say that, but I think that's what he had in his mind. <laughs> in other words, he was a local member of the Jewish community who, who um, of the small Kobe Jewish community, and he was the one who assisted the refugees. He and his his group assisted these thousands of refugees. They were overwhelmed by the refugees, and and uh, he gives a powerful testimony about how how he was able to uh, to, to try to assist them during that time. Um, Frank Newman's story is a great story. He's sent by the Varatsala to assess the needs of the yeshiva community in Japan, and he works with them, with the Mir and the other yeshivas, and and also with, with the other activists like Varaftig. I know that he describes uh, meeting Frank Newman several times during the time he was there, and he's able to do a lot. He's like the, I guess he's like the equivalent of Samuel Schmidt, who came a year and a half earlier in uh, Lithuania, so Frank Newman is yeah, as well as and and I guess the other one would be uh, Laura Margulis from the Joint, who I think recently there was a uh, somebody wrote a a PhD thesis on her, um, and may have been even released as a as a proper book. Um, who was sent to Shanghai by the Joint and stuck around there for uh, quite a while. Now, now life life in Japan was was complicated it was it's interesting you know by reading the different memoirs um and, and hearing the testimonies of their time in japan and you think about these you know the yeshiva bachram who came you know from most of them from poland from you know little shtetlach and learned in the mirror and maybe had been you know and had been to the big city of vilna before but what they saw in in, in japan in kobe is is it was nothing like they ever imagined, you know. And this is, you know, I don't think any of them really had watched movies before, and, <laughs> and, and you know, newspapers, you know, the pictures that were in newspapers then were very grainy, and and uh, you know, uh, Sugiara was probably the first Asian person those who met him, right? He was the first Asian person they'd ever met, and they show up in this country where they sleep on these little straw pads, and they they worship what's essentially uh, a Zara. Um, culture shock. Culture shock is not the word, but they also, you know, you see from the children that 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 were there. Um, uh, Revitson, uh, uh Walken, Kailea Walken, small, um, talks about the fruits, right? That that 
she was exposed to there for the first time, how plentiful the fruits were, right? And that's basically, you know, to, to the, it was exotic to them, but, uh, you know, they did not have necessarily access to chicken or meat, proteins, but it was, it was a lot of uh, rice. But you see also that the Japanese people as a whole, I mean, you see a lot of them, they, they really felt for these refugees and they, they tried to help them in many ways. And then you had governmental figures who were, who were mixed. So, you know, obviously, they were, they were, Aligned with the Germans. This is pre Pearl Harbor, but but uh, a lot of them had had been peddled anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and and actually some of the stuff that I uncovered is a newspaper called the Japan Times. I think it's especially the Japan Times and advertisers, and advertiser. And if you look in there, it's an English language newspaper that was published in in Kobe at that time. And and you go through the articles in there. There's literally every anti-Semitic conspiracy. I mean, these guys make Hamas seem like you know they, they really were they they're Jewish Jew lovers in terms of the the conspiracies and the craziness that's Tropes, out there about, about Jews about Jews. Uh, and a lot of it was Nazi influenced. It should be said. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. And they write about the Jews as thieves and and and. That. You know, it's just like, uh, I could read you one of them. It says, if the quote, if the quote, have end quote refugees are ready to take all possible advantage of the surroundings, even while wandering around the world in this manner, what would there be that the have not refugees would not dare undertake? The greatest hit in this respect that suppressed disgusted oath and provoked shocked admiration from those who have seen it is the sir practical fashion with which these quote-unquote have-nots patronize a tea hall. There is a popular tea hall across the street from a well-known department store. Into this tea hall one day sauntered two have-nots and ordered a cup of tea and a glass of water. A cup of tea and a glass of water for two? Yes, that. When the wandering waitress brought a cup of tea and a glass of water, one of them drank the tea and the other the water but just one half the contents. Then they exchanged the cup and glass and took what was left in them. Thus, both of them enjoyed tea and water in equal proportion, paying only for the tea. Can you beat that? The waitress was overheard saying. It is presumed that modesty prevented her from expressing in more picturesque terms what she really thought about them. And this practice has become a favorite method among these refugees. These remarks should show their keen business acumen born with them. In cases where most other refugees might have mentally collapsed, discouraged, grew desperate, they keep their composure and face any and all conditions with a song. They go carrying in their suitcases and trunks all sorts of junk that most of us would have kicked off into the sea while on board ship. Some of them made more than two round trips between Vladivostok Russia and Japan, unable to land at either port on account of some defects in their passports. In the basement passage of the Yohokama station, there is a fine display of all sorts of luggage piled up, all brought by these refugees with no immediate prospects of being taken away. The number of these luggages suddenly increased since July last year, markedly increased as August-September passed and October came when France collapsed. About 300 of these luggages would leave the station when there is a ship leaving Yokoma for an America. But in no time, there will be another 300 junk pieces brought in from Saruga, which is a city in Japan. And, and you see the the blatant anti-Semitism and hatred, and also the fact that, you know, maybe they're not as savvy as you think they are, the Japanese people. <laughs> you know, I also didn't realize that Tash was probably an issue. Why? They only order the tea and this major trick they've done. But I'll, I'll, I'm guilty also. I've gone to the restaurants and, and ordered chicken broth and asked for the matzo ball on the side so you get a little bit of extra broth. But uh, Right. But that, that's just one article I had in front of me. If anybody wants to reach out, I can send lots of them. But uh, really full of all kinds of things about money and Jews controlling the world and, and, and non-stop and, and a lot a lot of that you know i don't know who was reading this newspaper because it was in english and how many anglos there were in japan this was definitely sent out probably to the japanese expat community in america that saw this so probably caused anti-semitism against jews in america, america at the same time but mm -hmm. uh but fascinating stuff but for the most part the the refugees really 
their time in Japan, they, they write about it very positively because they had escaped hell, right? And they arrive in a place which treated them, you know, pretty decently. Uh, despite tiny, despite anti-Semitism in the in the media, they were actually treated pretty decently. Right, right, and 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 I think that uh, the you know the whole episode of uh, of Yom Kippur and, and when to keep Shabbos and all that you have an entire you recorded an entire episode right two episodes about that whole uh, I did an episode a couple of years ago sure yeah should post yeah, a link so to that you'd, yeah you'll post a link to that instead of going through that whole thing. But that's a fascinating story, and it's a subject that's still debated uh, till today. People, you know, it's a, it's a machlokas amongst Paiskim and how that worked. And you actually had, uh, right, two, two, two main groups that were there keeping Shabbos on different days the, the Mir group and the Tamchei Tamimim slash Amshna of Chachmei uh, Lublin group. Right. Um, but uh, it, it really is fascinating. But you also see the Achtas amongst these groups. You know and what they did to to help each other during uh, during these difficult times. But uh, I think we can uh, you know get to that on a further episode. I think this is probably uh, about as long as people want to hear me talk. <laughs> um, I think you added a lot. It was really great. Um, and there's so much more that I wanted to discuss with you. Maybe we could do this again. Maybe more focused on Shanghai itself. Um, you did some research on. Yeah, no, there's a lot more. There's a lot more in Japan as well that we haven't haven't gotten into. I think I'm still distracted from this trip to Israel and I haven't had a chance to buckle down like I would like to and go through all my uh, my notes and my files. Uh, another major expert on this is Nachum Shmario Zions, by the way, the host of the new podcast, right? Which I'm Jewish sure history schmooze. Jewish history schmooze and, and Nachum Shmario is a good friend of both of ours, and he, uh, you know, I think that he puts us both to shame when it comes to his knowledge of history, especially <laughs> Chabad history. Literally, oh, yeah. literally, is he is he is the the go to guy. You know, Rabbi Rakefet uh, proudly proudly refers to him almost in every shir he gives um, as his Talmud Nachum Shmario. Everyone doesn't even need a last name, right? There's only one Nachum Shmario. <laughs> but uh, he, he's a he's a wonderful guy and a very knowledgeable guy. Maybe at some point, you know, he's going to cover topics like this as well. So you know, it's right, it is something something nice about this whole Jewish podcasting community. You know, I I you know I play the double Shepkin role where I don't have my own podcast. I just come on yours and Nachi's and others. It's just yeah. easier than having to. But uh, but it's really nice that everyone promotes each other and it's a. It's a uh, it's, it's a, a good community. community. I, I think none of us feel any competition. We all want everyone else to succeed. We're a community of, of Jewish history, and all we want more is Jewish history. So Nachum Shmario has this new podcast. And just the other day, I was in touch with uh, Aubrey Hirsch. He's Jewish history for the curious. And we were schmoozing and sharing sources. And I told him I love his podcast. And he told me he loves mine. And 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 it's like that with all the Jewish history people, Nachi also, and and I feel like no one. We're just all adding to each other and complimenting each other, and and we're all good to each other. And I hope it always stays that way. And we should all be successful. And and yeah, another another podcast host who I bumped into yesterday, uh, Moshe Aaron or Momo Bauman of uh, Meaningful People fame. And he's a, he's an uncle of David Lipschitz, who's also uh, right, you know, and Nassim Kamenetsky. Right, but, but he you know plays a role in this story as well, um, and uh, yeah, I think if I'm correct, the David Lipschitz avoids Shanghai, right? He's one of those yes. that's lucky enough to go directly from Japan to New York, but like uh, Robert Cutler and, and a bunch of other people. I think that the David Lipschitz, you know, it's time for a book on David Lipschitz. Uh, definitely a Jewish history soundbite episode on definitely, him. Um, definitely. I think that uh, among the people whose Anikluch request uh, articles, episodes, books, I think the Lipschitz Anikluch um, really are, are are towards the top of the leaderboard. Um, <laughs> and he was he, he was an, he was an amazing person. I mean, anybody. Anybody who knew him, a lot of people know of him through Moshe Weinberger, who was a talent of his. But Davulich uh, is talking about Achta, Savas, Yisrael, Tyra, everything. I mean, really was all the yeah. mirrors the way they talk about Davulich. Herschel Schechter talks yeah. about him. You know, I mean, you know, it's interesting the whole uh, Alter Mirror community, how it's still like one family. Right. right, you know, even the, the great, great, the grandkids, the great grandkids. You know, it's not been an einigol. We need another, uh, another term for this, right? It's been a mirror einigol, uh, right. altimir einigol. 
but it's really <laughs> one uh, one big family, which maybe we are. Uh, you're you married into one. I married I into was, one, uh, and I adopted myself into the family. Right. I, guess, <laughs> I snuck in. I snuck in. I have no blood, but uh, I snuck into the family, but but by virtue of the fact that they all asked me for uh, documents and things like that. So I told them they had to adopt me. But uh, exactly. All right. All right, it's really been wonderful. It was great seeing you this this past week in in Yerushalayim, and uh, let's do this again. Let's do this again soon. Thank you so much, Davi. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.